Well, hello everyone. I'm Christopher Kent, and today we are going to be interviewing Dr. Matt McCoy. has a, a very distinguished background. Uh, he was a full professor at Life University for many years and served in a number of capacities there, including director of research. He is a founding member of the Foundation for Vertebral Subluxation Research and uh, does an awful lot of work for the foundation in his role as vice president. And he's a member of the board of trustees of Sherman College. And today he's with us and I said, hey, Let's uh, take advantage of this situation and, and do an on-purpose interview. So thank you, Matt. Thanks, Chris. Okay. Well, for those folks who don't know you, and I can't imagine such a person existing, but uh, there are some people who, you know, have not crawling out of their offices in a while. But anyway, uh, share with us a little bit about how you got into chiropractic and uh, what your journey's been and, and where it's going now. Uh, it's been a wild ride. Um... This is, I think, I think this is maybe the third time. Yeah, I think this is our third me. interview. You're right. And I think the last time was right when the UK stuff happened, where they did away with subluxation. Or yeah, yeah, it's been, that's, that's been a while. That's that's when we were involved in creating that so-called dossier. There you go. Uh, with Bruce Lipton and others. And that's right. I still use that as an example of ad hominem attacks, because they never criticized any of the writing or even the references. They just uh, attacked the people. And um, they attacked uh, Bruce because uh, he's involved with chiropractors. I mean, that's bad enough. Right. Wasn't that the one where they and said he, you were anti-vax? And they said I, I was an anti-vax campaigner. That's yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so it's been a while. So uh, let's see. Um, so lots happened since then. And I, we have a lot of new listeners. We... Uh, uh, as, as I showed you yesterday, because you, you've been listening forever, uh, and I introduced you to the app, which I don't think you were aware of. Uh, right. So we have a lot of uh, new subscribers who are using the app and are, are online that uh, don't go back to the cassette days. <laughs> cassette days, so yes. there might be. That's so, why I said there may be some people who, who don't know much about you. Well, so my background, you know, I grew up in chiropractic, and I grew up around this quote-unquote straight faction of the profession. Uh, I use the quotes just, you know, and I'm not sure that that term has much meaning these days <laughs> anymore, but back when straight meant something, I grew up in that faction of the profession, the DE movement, that sort of thing. Um, you know, been getting So you were a patient as a child? I was a patient. First chiropractor was uh, Sarasoli. Pasquale Sarasoli was our first chiropractor that I don't really remember it, but that's what I'm told. Mm -hmm. um, and in other words, you were under care when you were so young, you don't even remember it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I can remember riding around with my older brother, Bruce, who, who had become a chiropractor and was getting ready to, to start at life. He was in the second class at life. Uh, so we used to listen to, he used to make us listen to, uh, tapes of, speaking of cassette tapes, cassette tapes of, uh, of Sid Williams, uh, talking about chiropractic, went to DE at an early age. Um, 
I can remember actually my brother taking me to his organic chemistry class because life had just adopted or, or put into place that you had to have organic chemistry to get into school. So, um, so yeah, that's, that was a memory I hadn't thought about in a while. Um, and you didn't bail after you sat in on the organic no, class? No, no, we actually, I remember we made or soap. Liked we, we made soap that day. Oh, okay. <laughs> Did you try and sell it multi-level to support the school? No. Well, if only I knew um, that that's what chiropractic had become, a, a big multi-level marketing thing. Um, no, so, yeah, so I've been around chiropractic a while, um, went to chiropractic college, went to life, graduated from life. And what year was that? That was graduating in 89, 1989. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was back in the day, so to speak. Uh, left life after I graduated, went to practice in uh, Oyster Bay, Long Island with Bob Hoffman of uh, Master Circle fame. And um, saw how a high volume family practice was run and uh, spent about a year with him and then left and really just went to Florida and, and figured out a way to open up a practice. Uh, ended up opening up a practice that grew to four clinics and a lot of staff and a lot of other chiropractors. And after I did that for a while and accomplished those practice goals, I decided I wanted to get into chiropractic research of all things and get into politics and teaching and was all. this following some sort of uh, a toxic event or a brain injury <laughs> <laughs> well as as my brothers uh, said when i announced to them that i was selling my interest in the clinics and and moving to georgia to get involved in all this stuff uh they basically took me out to dinner and and asked me if I was losing my mind. Am I crazy? How no, it's the first make, thing that came yeah. to mind. I mean, I've always been crazy, but it sounds like <laughs> there was a time when you were relatively sane. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what they were wondering. Um, you know, and they, they did. They confronted me on how are you going to make money doing research in chiropractic? How are you going to make money teaching in chiropractic? And Honestly, my mindset at that point was, well, I didn't know how I was ever going to make a dime in clinical practice, and, you know, that all worked out, so I figured this would work out, too. Uh, it was sort of a, you know, throwing my hat over the wall sort of an event, you know, now i got to go over the wall and get the hat. Um, but what happened during that sort of transition was I got this invitation to go to Russia and um, go on sort of a mission trip, fact-finding trip, academic trip to present chiropractic to the, the, these Russian medical doctors and, and practitioners over there. And so because I was already, had already left practice and was on my way to move to Georgia, I decided, well, why not take a, a couple of weeks and do this? So I went on this trip. And while I was there, I was asked to come back. I was going to say, you were there an awful lot longer than <laughs> yeah, a couple of weeks. Yeah, I was there longer than a couple of weeks. And they told me that it, I would only be back for about six months to help them establish this clinic. And that six months obviously turned into two years. Um, and which, most people don't know this, but you were, from what I understand, the first licensed chiropractor in Russia. I, I was the first licensed chiropractor in Russia. I actually have a, a license to practice chiropractic there. I had to take 
an exam, a, a written exam, a practical exam. Um, and this was all with the medical people, this right? This was all with uh, manual therapists in, uh, in, in Russia, Russia who, are, who are medical doctors that have a specialty in manual therapy, yeah. Uh, they and, and was the exam in Russian? The, the, well, or, yeah, the exam was in Russian, I but I had a translator, yes, uh -huh. correct. That, that was a whole interesting experience. And on top of that, just as an aside, is, you know, I was not welcomed with open arms by the manual therapy community uh, in Russia because part of what we were wanting to do was establish chiropractic as a separate profession over there. Uh -huh. uh, so these were all MDs that specialized in manual therapy. Correct. And they weren't too keen on somebody coming over there and establishing a completely separate profession because to them, chiropractic was merely just a technique, one of the tools mm -hmm. in their toolbox that they used, you know, in terms of manual therapy. So well, what kinds of techniques did they use? I'm, I'm, I'm curious. They, um, it, it, it would depend upon how they were trained, who trained them, mm -hmm. what their schooling was, but I, I mean, saw was it HVLA stuff, trigger point stuff, deep massage, McKenzie? All of yeah. that. All of that, including, you know, I often told the story about um, one of the first manual, Russian manual therapists that I saw adjust, and it was done as a, really a demonstration. Uh, and the analysis and what I'll call the adjustment was honestly some of the better, more finer procedures that I've seen even in chiropractic. So, mm -hmm. you know, that's, I think, some of the danger that we've always talked about yeah. relative to terminology and, uh, you know, adjustment versus manipulation and subluxation mm -hmm. versus articular dysfunction and all this stuff. Because well, again, going down that road, uh, did these people consider a neurological component at all? Or was it simply a a pain control mobilized kind of paradigm. No, it was it was the nervous system was definitely involved. They were very open to the entire concept. In fact, to be honest, when we went over there the first time and, and presented to the, the medical school and uh, you know to these other institutions and clinics and hospitals, uh, when we were talking about even the vitalistic uh, components of this, because remember, Ralph Boone mm -hmm. uh, was on this trip with us. Oh, I Ralph, didn't know that. Ralph Boone, the was late one great of the Ralph Boone. Yeah. For those not familiar with Ralph Boone, he was a, a DC PhD. He uh, served in all kinds of capacities. I think he was a president of a couple colleges, New Zealand for one, Southern California. Southern College California. He was uh, director of research at Sherman. He was uh, a pretty amazing guy. Yeah. So a network practitioner, yep. I believe. Uh, in fact, uh, did some work with Donnie. Yeah, I was staying with him when we did the, the functional MRI experiment. That's right. And that's where I first saw network applied to an animal. Because Ralph had several pet cats. And when I saw the cats get into the wave, I said, yeah, this, <laughs> this is not a learned behavior. <laughs> I didn't this know is that, not something a cat normally does. I didn't know the cats did the way. Yeah, That's yeah, awesome. it was amazing. So, yeah, so, you know, so we had people like Ralph, mm -hmm. uh, Veronica Gutierrez was yeah, on that Veronica, trip. Uh, yeah. So when, when these folks were all presenting, uh, mm -hmm. you know, we were all presenting chiropractic uh, as a vitalistic uh, construct. Mm -hmm. uh, this was the first trip, the, right? Yeah, yeah, this was the first trip. Mm -hmm. 
And none of that was met with any sort of disbelief or derision. I mean, mm-hmm. it, they, it was, well, of course. I mean, that mm-hmm. was their attitude. Well, of course that's the way it works. I mean, mm-hmm. it, there was no real issue. Any, any issues we had had more to do with territorial type of stuff mm-hmm. than, than the philosophy or, you know, the foundational tenets we were presenting. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. So how did this presentation develop into a two-year adventure? Well, and, and you uh, wrote a book on it. If anyone wants one, I know I bought one. I don't know if anyone else did, but I I found it interesting. Just south of Siberia. Yeah, right. I mean, the it's available on Amazon. The description, yeah, just south of Siberia, and the uh, uh, the description of the meat room was enough to gross me out and, and consider vegetarianism. But uh, anyway, the meat room. Yes. Um, well, I mean, essentially, what happened? We were at the end of the trip. And uh, they took us on a barbecue, took us out for a barbecue on this beach. Um, and you can imagine a, a Russian beach in Vladivostok. Um, uh, somehow when you think of Vladivostok, you don't think of beaches. <laughs> you don't think of beaches. They, they you think actually, of ice. <laughs> they have some beautiful yeah. beaches, actually. Uh-huh. Um, but anyway, on the way to the barbecue, I got the invitation. They said, listen, the 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 because during this trip I got the I had the opportunity to adjust uh, pol- Russian politicians, the governor of the region, vice governors, the whole nine yards. you know mm-hmm. we, the whole idea was we wanted these people to welcome us yeah uh, and for the government to sort of sanction us and and apparently that's what happened. I apparently made quite an impression on the governor and so they invited me to come back six months and stay. And so I said, well, let me think about it. And so after a day of, of barbecuing and uh, playing, teaching them how to play American football on the beach and drinking a lot of vodka, uh, I told them, yeah, I'd be happy to come back. Well, of course, this was before you were married. <laughs> this was before yes. I was married, yeah. Uh, so I said yes and then uh, came back home and I spent the next uh, three months or so basically just getting ready to go. I mean, we were going to establish a clinic, so I had to get equipment, I had to get tables, I had to buy x-ray machine, uh, you know, everything that's involved in setting up a clinic. So they didn't have any of this stuff for you in the hospital? Wasn't it in a hospital setting? This was in a a women and children's hospital is Uh where the clinic was established, yes. So you had to have all the stuff, the manual therapists didn't have any of this? The stuff that they had was very, not you know, most of it was homemade mm. sort of stuff. And uh-huh. the intention for this clinic was that it was going to be, and it was, it was a for-profit enterprise. Mm-hmm. And consider that this was in 1996. So the changes in Russia had just really happened. Boris Yeltsin was still president, mm-hmm. sort of on his way out. Um, and... You know, so the, the, their society, their culture was transitioning to a market economy. Now, I mean, it's all gone backwards since, but uh, they were in the midst of, mm-hmm. you know, really embracing capitalism <laughs> at uh-huh. that point. Uh, so so was, wasn't it a fishing company that started yeah, this? This was yeah. a, a second largest fishing company uh-huh. in, uh, in that region of Russia uh, that was basically, you know, bankrolled this thing and, and mm-hmm. made it happen. So mm-hmm. they wanted to establish a modern, well-equipped clinic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they wanted... That was to... housed in a hospital, but really 
was a separate business. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we, we literally had our own floor, our mm -hmm. own section of the hospital. Uh, so, you know, they had a pediatric wing. I mean, this was a women and children's hospital, mm -hmm. so they specialized all in all different aspects of women's health care and children's mm -hmm. health care. Uh, and so we occupied a floor of this uh, hospital. Yeah. And they redid the entire, you know, gutted the place and just made it look like a very modern clinic. Uh -huh. compared to the, you know, what else was going on in the hospital. I can only imagine. So just share with us a little bit more about, you know, give us the Reader's Digest version of, of the two years. And, yeah, um, so. What, what eventually happened? Uh, you know, you apparently left. Is the clinic still operational? You know, the, the, that sort of stuff. Yeah, the, the clinic is, well, that, the, the actual space where the clinic was is moved. I mean, it's in a different hospital, a different area or something. Uh, and the doctors that, uh, that I worked with are still, still there. Some of them aren't working in that clinic anymore. Um, but the intention was after the two years, I mean, my work had pretty much been done. The clinic was established and mm -hmm. I really wanted to move to the next phase, which was to establish a school there. Mm -hmm. And so my intention was to go back to life and, you know, basically, uh, talk to Sid, uh, Williams and see if this was something he was interested in. And basically it was all done. It was like, you know, here, they, they want to, they want a school. We even had an institution, a large university there. Uh, this was the largest university in the Russian Far East, like 30,000 students. Uh, and they wanted to start a chiropractic program. Uh, long story short with that was when I got to, finally got to life and started working there, little did I know that we were on double secret probation with, uh, the CCE. And, uh, shortly after that, you know, things fell apart, Sid resigned, uh, and then it was all trying to recover from that accreditation crisis. So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't high on anybody's priority list to establish a school there. So, mm -hmm. um, so that's sort of what happened. Uh, I came back, I spent, uh, you know, the next, uh, 18 years of life. And, uh, then last September, uh, I, I left life and, um, you know, doing all these other things, the foundation, Cairo Futures, uh, publishing, working with you. Uh, that kind of brings us up to speed, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Quite an adventure. <laughs> um, just thinking of what you endured in Russia. I mean, you heard, I, I remember the book talking about, you know, electricity would just go off or, or water would just go off for a few hours. And yeah. Oh, not just a few hours. I mean, there were, you know, there were times where we would go for weeks without electricity. There were times where we'd go for days without water. And then sometimes you'd have water, but it would only be cold water. And, and you have to imagine this is, you know, Vladivostok, Russia, you know, basically colder than Siberia because it's actually on the water. So the wind that comes off the Japan Sea makes it for some reason much colder in the winter. Uh, so when the, you only have cold water, it's like really cold water. Mm -hmm. uh, and then sometimes you'd only have hot water. And the interesting thing about the hot water was the hot water was scalding hot when it came out. So you can imagine, you know, getting up in the morning Pretty extremes. and wondering what you're going to have. Yeah. Um, you know, periods of no electricity, things of that nature. So, you know, it was I suppose uh, the internet quite was out challenge. of the question. No, that the That's the one thing, thing that worked. We we yeah. uh, there was dial-up internet. It was one of the conditions that I insisted on uh -huh. if I was going to do this that yeah. I had to have internet access. So, 
Uh, they made sure I had internet access. I mean, it's yeah. not what we're used to these days, but I did have it. That's that mm -hmm. was uh, that helped me. <laughs> I, I can imagine <laughs> when there was electricity. I can imagine. Um, so, after life, life after life. I think isn't there a, life after life a feature yeah. in in a publication <laughs> titled that? Yeah. Um, what's been going on? Uh, you know, everybody asked me that. So bottom line is I wasn't looking to do any, add anything else to my schedule. I mean, I've always have got plenty to do. I have a malpractice insurance company. We're dealing with work, running the foundation, uh, the publishing company, publishing research journals. So there's plenty to do. Uh, and on top of that, I got a nine-year-old son and a wife and family and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, I've really just more or less poured my life into and my energy into all of those things. Um, you know, just taking the time that I used to spend given to life and just putting that energy into those other endeavors. So let's talk about it. Let's start with the foundation, since that's kind of why we're here today. We should have taped the conversation we had for the past two days. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. Maybe not, not all, all of that of is for public consumption. <laughs> <laughs> so you know how did it start and the foundation where's it been going so, and well it, let's see because uh, we if there's anything bad about the foundation it's that we don't toot our own horn loud enough that's true uh, you know there are organizations that have done significantly less for significantly more money and uh you know here's here's your chance to to talk about how it started what the vision was what's already been done and more excitingly what's in the future and i mean that could take the rest of the show but right and that's fine if it does <laughs> well i'll tell you what i said to the the uh crowd uh last weekend at mile high i you know did a little presentation on the foundation and the history and and how it got started and you know, essentially, I, I told them our story, which which was a conversation at some point that I don't remember the exact day or the hour or a month when it happened, but it was it was about seven, eight years ago. You and I were having a conversation about the direction of the profession and mm -hmm. lamenting about our concerns and what are we going to do about it and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think for me and, you know, I think you may have commented on this also that it was sort of a rocking chair test almost uh, of thinking about sitting on your porch when you're 85 years old knock on wood uh and thinking back about you know well what did you accomplish in chiropractic what did you change what legacy did you leave uh and so we i think we were having those sort of conversations and being concerned about you know that that wouldn't be a good experience. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I was, I was, I, and and I'm still haunted. I don't know if it was Reggie quoting BJ or if it was Reggie's own thought, but I remember he used to always say, "If you were the last chiropractor on earth, would chiropractic survive?" And there are actually two phases to that answer. The first is yes. Because if I were the last chiropractor on earth, we wouldn't have all this other garbage to deal with, and uh, it would be what it is. Uh, on the other hand, uh, if I were the last chiropractor on earth, but there were 60,000 other people calling themselves chiropractors doing other stuff, uh, the answer is very different. Well, yeah, how are you going to change that? Yeah. Right? Uh, so, you know, I think what came out of those discussions between the two of us was... 
you know, we wanted to at least have something that we could show that we were leaving some kind of a leg up for, yes. the, you know, the future, uh, you know, budding researchers or, you know, philosophers in chiropractic or, you know, people who embraced our tenets and, and principles uh, that they'd have a leg up on, you know, uh, taking the profession to the next, you know, uh, yard line or whatever it is. Uh, and so the concept was to, to have a nonprofit organization that focused on those things, that focused on... Uh, on research, on policy-related issues in chiropractic that focused on educational issues, obviously with all of the accreditation uh, issues that have, you know, plagued the subluxation faction of the profession for so long, uh, and then just service in general to the profession. Uh, and in doing that, we realized, you know, we, we've got to sort of train the next generation of folks that are going to pick up this mantle. Uh, so the idea was to develop a scholarship program uh, that we would uh, look for and, and train the next generation of researchers, provide them scholarships to get advanced degrees or some type of advanced training, even if it wasn't at the graduate level. Uh, and then in exchange, they would do research for the foundation relative to our research agenda that we had developed. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's what we did. Uh, and then once we established the foundation, we came up with a, a research agenda and a number of policy statements. And, uh, and that's a big deal. And, and you were the primary developer of that agenda. And it's something I think every chiropractor should really take a look at and give some serious consideration to. Because whether or not chiropractic is here after we're gone, and whether the chiropractic profession survives, but chiropractic passes on, uh, will depend on how effectively that agenda is implemented. It's, it's really a blueprint for ensuring the future. I agree. I agree 100%. I, you, this was the other thing I said last week when I was talking about this topic, that the reality for me is that uh, principles that chiropractic is based on and, and our tenants, and I'm talking about subluxation, the adjustment, and, and, it's, and, it's, and the vitalistic nature of all of that, that those tenants really don't belong to us. Those, those, that belongs to humanity. That belongs to people who are sick and suffering. And the service that our profession provides I mean, I, I'm going to say unfortunately only because I'm selfish from this perspective, but unfortunately anybody can do it. Anybody mm -hmm. can be trained to do this and provide that service to give that to people. Uh, the selfish part of me, and I hope that there is some selfishness in, in terms of the profession, profession-wide on this, that we want to be the ones to steward that. We want to be the ones to bring that forward. We want to be the ones that... Um, uh, that bring that message and that service to humanity. But the reality is if we don't do our job, somebody else is going to do it. I really believe very strongly oh, in that. Oh, there's no question. And I think we see evidence, obviously, every day now that other people are doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, in some cases, they're calling it chiropractic. In some cases, they're not. But, you know, the bottom line is it's being done. There was that paper just last week that came out. Uh, I think it was an osteopathic paper where they did uh, manipulation 
uh, to T5 or T6, I forget what mm-hmm. the segment is. The segment was that they did the manipulation to, but the purpose of it was to see if it had an effect on endocrine response, mm-hmm. neuro, the uh, neuroendocrine response. response. Yeah, they were and looking at uh, cortisol, t- testosterone, and heart rate variability, right. as I recall. Right. Yeah, so yeah. they were even looking at autonomic dysfunction yeah. tied to these mm-hmm. these biochemical changes as a result of a manipulation at, at, at the level that they did it, I think mm-hmm. T5 or 6. Whether they but needed it or not. Whether they needed yeah. it or not, and that's the, that, that's, this is what this is what people really have to grasp about this yeah. is that when you read the description of the methods for the procedure that they did, they did no analysis to determine if the person needed that manipulation mm-hmm. at that level. They just manipulated that level and then looked mm-hmm. to see what happened. And, you know, when you read the paper, I mean, they're hailing this as, you know, look at these changes we got. And, and this, this needs to be very scary <laughs> to us as a profession in terms of, uh, of what we just talked about uh, relative to the importance of analysis and then specific adjusting and that analysis and specific adjusting being directed at uh, the existence of a subluxation, that there is a clinical reason, that there is a, uh, you know, an entity, a process underway that needs to be corrected or addressed or reduced uh, and then some measurement is taken to make sure that you've done that. But the reality is that there are other folks out there that aren't doing it that way. They're doing, you know, they're doing these types of things where it's gross spinal manipulation and there's no assessment done to see if the person is even subluxated. And I mean, that's a big deal. That's why um, I'm so passionate about the concept of adjustment being used solely to describe a procedure directed toward the reduction or correction of a vertebral subluxation. Um, they say, well, isn't any uh, mechanical input into the spine an adjustment? I said, no, it's either trauma or an assault if it's not an adjustment. <laughs> you know, is there, is there malevolent intent or benevolent intent? You know? Well, and intention to, is all does, that matters. And Chris. does the body know the difference? Uh, <laughs> or is it just saying, you know, yes, the nervous system will, will scream if you bang on the spine. Um, I think that's been established. The issue is, are there favorable, predictable physiologic changes as well as favorable health outcomes that occur when a subluxation is reduced? Yeah, this is the key. And, you know, I I think there might be some people that don't want to hear this, but this is the way I've been describing it to people and trying to explain to chiropractors to get them motivated, to get involved, and to even to donate, to understand the value and importance of research and and what it means for the future of the profession. Because here's the reality that where we are right now. And I'm going to use the brain stuff as an example, you know, because all of a sudden, you know, chiropractors discovered the brain like it hasn't been there all along. Well, you know, brain cell to tissue cell is kind of old. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when I did my, my mental health presentation uh, to a group of psychiatrists, I found a, a quote from BJ and some quotes from DD where they talked about how when the atlas is subluxated, it compromises the function of the brain. I want to get those quotes. And from as them. if this is something new. Yeah. Right. So, so, but, and so what we're seeing is this, you know, sudden emergence of interest by chiropractors in the brain and that an adjustment can affect the brain. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, as if that's something new, I don't think that's something new, but he, here's what we need to understand that if, 
if, if you can take a person, and we're going to call these people self-crackers. So these are people who can manipulate their own necks, crack their own backs, and that sort of oh, stuff. Oh, a lot of those are on YouTube. Yeah. And pretty scary. Absolutely. <laughs> and if, if you can take one of these people, and they already know how to do it, but if you could even take them and train them a little bit better and teach them how to palpate taut and tender fibers and maybe even figure out if the joint is stuck or not. And most importantly, uh, the appropriate billing codes. All right. <laughs> it's all about the codes. Kidding. Uh, yeah. But if you could take that person, train them that way, mm -hmm. and then have them apply a force and crack their own neck, and if they're hooked up to, uh, to, to in a way to measure brain function, and that makes a change in the brain, well, then what is the need for the chiropractor? I mean, this is crucial. So is it, is it actually more beneficial for a trained chiropractor to analyze you, determine that you're subluxated, if you're subluxated, come up with a specific vector uh, for the adjustment, apply the adjustment, and then post-measure, is that going to have a better effect than somebody cracking their own neck? Because here's the reality. The reality is if it doesn't matter, then there's no need for the chiropractor anymore, or it's going to be a much more limited role for the chiropractor, and or there's going to be a whole host of other providers that are going to be able to crack your neck or crack your back because you, you don't need, turns out, if we don't do this work, it could turn out that there's no need uh, for any of the specificity. Has that or maybe even ever, intent. Has that question ever been addressed? Not that, not yet. <laughs> not that I'm aware of. <laughs> not yet. Not that I know of. But we're working on something. I don't know if we should come out well, with that. Well, I was yet, going to we? say I don't know how much uh, you wish to disclose, but let's if just say, let's were just to say compare those yeah, things. Let's just yeah. say we're working on uh, comparing that. Yes. Because the reality is, you know, I just feel like, you know, we were talking about before about what's driving us to even do this. Um, we don't have a lot of time to waste. So my feeling is, let's get those big questions answered as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, does it make a difference whether or not a trained chiropractor looking for a subluxation that's analyzed it using valid and reliable means, does that make a difference? Or can just racking and cracking or grip and ripping, does that do the same thing? We got to get that resolved. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that's one thing. And then the other issue that we've been talking about is the epidemiological issue. Well, let's um, talk about that because... You know, critics of chiropractic have also often said, well, a chiropractor can find a subluxation in anyone. And, you know, as I've often said, well, you know, we're not responsible for the prevalence of subluxation. It's, you know, are dentists responsible for the fact that most people uh, have some sort of dental disorder at some time or another in their lives? You know, um, obviously, it would be nice to look at causes and it would be nice to look at... Uh, at measures that one might take in one's lifestyle, but that that's not where we're focusing now. Uh, you know, our our concern is, you know, hey, you got an abscess. You know, we got to do something now. Right. Uh, you know, we've got a situation where it appears that the prevalence of subluxation is is high. But has anyone looked at that? And and again, uh, for our listeners who don't know, um, you also have a master's in public health from Emory. Uh, and and you're you're very well schooled in this. So, um, right. is there any such data, and and is is this something we can realistically look at? Well, shockingly, you know, the, that data doesn't exist. I, I think the only 
uh, epidemiological study looking at uh, the prevalence of subluxation is was done here at Sharman. I think Bill Deccan did uh, something he presented at IRAPS a oh. few years ago, and I think he was looking at the prevalence of subluxation in pediatric cases that entered Sharman Clinic. Um, I couldn't quote quote from the study, but I'm pretty sure uh, my recollection is that it was high, that mm-hmm. pretty much, you know, all the kids that were coming in were subluxated. Uh, but other than that, none of that exists. So here we have, we have a profession and especially a faction within the profession, the subluxation faction of this profession, who we, we believe that subluxation is, well, first of all, we believe that it leads to increased morbidity or mortality, uh, which means we believe that it makes people sick and it kills them, maybe not right away, but as an insidious process, certainly. Uh, and we believe that it's either epidemic or pandemic. We believe that yeah. the majority of people walking around on this planet are at some point in their lives subluxated, if not subluxated right now. So, you, you know, we need to step back for a second and look at this as a non-chiropractor and, and think about what I just said and imagine yourself as being a public health official or any other member of allopathy and hearing a profession say, hey, there's this pathophysiological process that makes people sick and kills them and everybody's got it. I mean, can you imagine what we would do as chiropractors if medicine came out tomorrow and they had a new disease and everybody has it and it makes people sick and kills them and you know they have the treatment for it. They have the new drug or they have the new surgery. Well, we would all lose our minds about that because how can they say that? They have no evidence for it. Meanwhile, this is what we're running around talking about. Uh, and this is sort of a, you know, a sacrilegious thing to be talking about and saying, but everybody needs to understand how crucial it is to get these questions answered. And and here's the thing about it. There's no reason from a technological perspective why that question, those questions can't be answered. In other words, we're in the era of big data. Uh, we have the advent of the internet. We have the ability to manipulate large databases, advanced statistical methods. The technical means exist to answer these epidemiological, fundamental epidemiological questions about the basis of our profession. What's missing is the will of the profession to put resources into doing it. That's what's missing. Uh, luckily, you know, the foundation, we've been able to cobble together some resources and get some pretty profound things done. And one of those things that we're actually in the middle of right now is, is, is an epidemiological study. And so we are looking at, uh, don't quote me on these numbers yet. These are ballpark numbers, but we're looking at, uh, about four or 5,000 patients, uh, that entered two chiropractors' clinics, and these patients were assessed using um, valid and reliable means in terms of subluxation. So these people were x-rayed, uh, uh, lines were drawn on the x-rays, and measurements were taken. Uh, they also had uh, a workup using uh, HRV, surface EMG, thermal scanning. So we have a neurological component. We have a biomechanical component. So we have the two main components that you need in order to say you've got a subluxation. Uh, And we have valid and reliable means to measure it. And we've got 
possibly as many as 5,000 subjects in the study. So we're going to be able to pull out some data on this to show, well, what is the prevalence of subluxation on people that are entering a chiropractor's office? Now, that's the first step in this. Once we work through all of the kinks with this first round, our next step is going to be to open it up to the rest of the profession to provide their data, and then we're going to be able to get a good picture of what's happening out there relative to the prevalence of subluxation in the general population. And, in fact, we're going to be able to even talk about severity of it. Uh, if what our statisticians tell us uh, is true, we're going to be able to even have discussions about severity, of level of severity of subluxation in the population as well. And we'll be able to look at it even through spinal levels. Is it, is it more prevalent in the neck? Is it more prevalent in the dorsals, lumbar? You know, mm-hmm. we're going to be able to look at this throughout the whole, whole spine. Very exciting stuff. What do you see as a time frame? Um, well, we are, for this phase of the study, this first round of it, I mean, we, we are right now looking at that data. So we're looking at that data with statisticians from a major research institution. Uh, so I'd say, what are we, in uh, August, September? I'd say by the end of the year, early part of next year, we should have uh, data that we're going to be able to get out you know, put out there and publish. Yeah. That's very exciting. Hopefully even be talking about it before that, but yeah. Because, you know, I, I remember hearing uh, detractors and so-called skeptics saying things like, well, only a tiny proportion of the American population is under chiropractic care and everyone else is doing just fine without it. And are they doing just fine without it? Right. Well, that's the yeah. whole notion of the silent killer as, as far yes. as the subluxation is concerned. And, and the notion that, uh, that, it, that the morbidity associated with it and the mortality associated with it can be an insidious process, right? I, I mean, look mm-hmm. at some of the studies that have been coming out lately just on, uh, you know, elderly people with hyperkyphotic spines. I mean, the two studies that I'm familiar with it, and I know that there's, there's more than just these two, but the two that I'm familiar with, I mean, they come right out in the papers and say that if you have hyperkyphosis, you're going to die sooner than if you didn't have yeah, these well, problems. You know, forward head posture has been correlated right. with all-cause mortality. So, right, right. Um, you know, these are things, I mean, how can the investigators who found this stuff just say, well, here it is, and, and, and there's never any follow-up? And it's, it's almost like the question um, we, we had with surface EMG and, and the concept of dyspinesis. Uh, they said that they discovered the phenomenon, but they really had no intervention to do anything about right. it. Well, that's just it. They don't have an intervention for it. Yeah. Our profession does. We have the intervention for it. The problem is that our researchers are not using our unique terminology uh, in their research. Uh, and so instead, it's, it's being you know, published as this general spinal manipulation or manual therapy and articular dysfunction. And those are common domain procedures that any profession can do. Uh, you know, I mean, we've got personal trainers out there that are cracking people's backs. You've got massage therapists that are cracking, cracking people's backs. I mean, look, if, if, if the practitioner and, as I said, the specificity and the training and all that doesn't matter, then, you know, our profession has very little to hang its hat on. 
Well, again, the whole issue focuses on vertebral subluxation and do we have reliable and valid means to detect its presence and determine its correction. And that's the difference. You know, I, those who have been listening for a while in science know how cynical I can get when I read papers that say things like, uh, you know, assignment to the manipulation group was determined by coin toss, you know, and the criteria is showing up. And, and if we're brutally honest, this is true in some chiropractic practices. You know, if you show up, there's going to be a thrust applied to the spine uh, regardless of whether or not there's objective criteria. Uh, right. And you know, we, we have to be honest about that, too. And, and hopefully, uh, these studies will help to bring this out. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, your audience, the on-purpose audience, uh, it, it might be a little bit of a different audience because I think a lot of the folks listening are using uh, some type of instrumentation. They're probably using an insider, a millennium, you know, some version of that or some aspect of that or a piece of that, even mm -hmm. if it's just the service EMG or th just thermal scanning, whatever it happens to be. Uh, the reality is that there are objective, valid, and reliable methods and, and ways to measure components of the vertebral subluxation. Mm -hmm. there, there is a lot of them. And so even if you look at our research agenda that we came up with for the foundation, uh, you know, that's, that's one of our first agenda items is, uh, is taking a look at, at this issue. And thankfully, uh, we're on fairly good ground when it comes to ways to measure components of the subluxation. So uh, the good news about that is, is it allows us then to go into the next steps and see, okay, we have ways to measure subluxation, so now we can look at epidemiological uh, uh, data related to it and make determinations or, or find out how prevalent this thing is in society and how many people are suffering from it. Uh, but then it also allows us to go into looking at what happens after the care, what right. happens as a result of somebody trying to get their subluxation reduced. Uh, and In other words, are there, are there physiological as well as quality of life issues right. that improve as a result? Right. Just, just even going back to the neuroendocrine stuff, you know, it'd be, mm -hmm. well, it'd be nice if we, if we, if we were going to do a study like that. Okay, well, let's first determine <laughs> if the person is subluxated and then see if there was a change in neuroendocrine function, but then also see if the subluxation was reduced. Yeah, because absolutely. if if the change in physiology happens and the parameters of the subluxation are not changed or reduced, then we could find out pretty quickly that that doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. uh, and we need to know whether that matters or not. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, to me, it's more of a moral and an ethical obligation than anything else. But I, I would also like to know if, if these fundamental things that I've based my entire life on, <laughs> my mm -hmm. entire career on, if they're just figments of our imagination or things we believe and things we wish, or whether they're really, you know, this stuff really plays out in reality in terms of testing it, you know, through a scientific method. And to my knowledge, no one else is doing this. No one else is raising these, these potentially painful uh, but just as potentially exciting and, and positive, I mean, if there is a difference, and if we can measure that difference, and if we can show changes in, in health outcomes that are associated with subluxation correction, wow, I mean, that, that would change the earth. And if exactly. it's all... If it's all uh, duda, well... Then we need to know that, We too. need to know that. <laughs> we need to know that. So what uh, I was kind of 
happily surprised when um, the report for the foundation came out. And um, I saw that there were, what, 40-something papers and presentations? Something like that. That have yeah. been attributed to, to the work of the foundation and yeah. that this was all done at a cost of like 200 something thousand dollars yeah in a world where some people are asking for a million dollars to do one study that's not nearly as comprehensive right yeah well and that's you know one of the things i think we should be proud of at the foundation at the same time uh we need to uh we still need to get donations well we we, uh, we can't but... we, we can't depend on <laughs> volunteer labor forever no uh and we can't depend on, on just using relationships with specialists in other areas that are, are doing things, at least for now, out of the goodness of their heart. And right. um, yes, uh, what I've often said is uh, I'm not suggesting that we don't need more donations. We most assuredly do. But I'm saying I don't know of any organization that compares uh, in terms of stewardship for your funds and and output and, and just plain bang for buck. Right. Very, uh, you know, I, I can't off the top of my head think of anyone else who can we are, do more for less. We are definitely a lean, mean fighting machine. That is for sure. And we, we're not just talking about it. We've actually done right, stuff. We've actually done stuff. Uh, and we've got a lot of stuff in the pipeline. We've got a lot of stuff, you know, I talked about the well, epidemiological study. Tell me what you study. think you can share to the extent that you can. We, we can talk about the fact that a case study involving telomere length yeah, let's, change. Let's talk about a couple uh, of those hit it. things. We, we talked about those uh, in the science section, that oh, paper, awesome. and uh, how exciting that is. Well, and, here's the, uh, let me add the piece to that, because okay. I, uh, I don't know if you mentioned in that section, but uh, so we have now a single case study, and this is, you know, the, the interesting thing about it is that this is exactly like the poster child for why the case study is so important, mm -hmm. you know, because this is the first ever case study uh, where we demonstrated that uh, somebody under chiropractic care had an increase in telomere length without any other interventions. Uh, but what we're going to do with that is now we're going to open this up to anybody in the profession, any practicing chiropractor that wants to get involved in a larger study of this. Um, and we'll have information, you know, available to people for this in the, in the near future. But the bottom line is that, you know, you will contact us and you'll tell us you want to be a part of this. And, and we'll have this all explained out and the process and procedure laid out. Uh, but essentially, you'll be doing pre and post telomere uh, checks on these patients, and we have the potential now to get thousands of subjects into a large prospective longitudinal study mm -hmm. uh, to see what kinds of changes happen in these telomeres as a result of chiropractic care. So that's that's very exciting. Uh, the other um, the other uh, study that we have is, and this is this started with a case study as well. Uh, so far, the only place it's shown up is at Sherman IRAP. So it was presented at uh, the Research and Philosophy Conference last year. And this was a single case study involving a patient who had type 1 diabetes and, you know, just insulin dependent. Right. Juvenile so, diabetes. So this is, you know, the it. genetic yeah. one. This yeah. is the one that supposedly people are born with. Type 1 diabetes. Uh, undergoing chiropractic care and under continuous glucose monitoring so you can see the changes in the glucose level you know live as it's happening 
And so long story short, this person uh, saw improvement. And so the next thing we're doing is opening that up to, to people in the profession, practitioners out there that want to that are taking care of type 1 diabetics. Mm -hmm. Well, let's get that data so we have a larger study. Uh, so what we're trying to do is where we've made some type of, uh, uh, you know, a foothold in terms of a, a research topic uh, is to then take that to the next level uh, and look at how widespread this phenomena is. Very exciting stuff. So... If people would like to donate and or participate, how can they contact you? Uh, that's pretty easy. You can email me. It's my name, Dr. Matthew McCoy at gmail.com. Dr. Matthew McCoy at gmail.com. Uh, or you can go right to the foundation's website, vertebralsubluxation.org. Uh, vertebralsubluxation.org. That's an easy one. Uh, and there's a way to, you know, click the contact button and shoot us an email. Uh, be happy to answer any questions and, you know, happy to take any donations anyone would like to give as well. Exactly. Well, we're almost out of time, but I don't want to sign off without touching on the other two things you mentioned. Um, one that's, you know, almost uh, uh, a sibling of the, of the foundation are, are the journals. Correct. That you have taken upon yourself um, the creation of four journals that are basically focused on vertebral subluxation research, which, to my knowledge, no others are. They're peer-reviewed. Uh, they're indexed in ICL and several other indices. Um, just tell us a tiny bit about that. Yeah, so real quick on that, you mentioned, you know, started four journals. Actually, I started three. The, the one had already existed. That was the Journal of Vertebral Subluxation Research, and we were talking about Ralph mm -hmm. Boone earlier. Ralph right. Boone was the first editor. Uh, he was the editor. first editor, I remember uh, that. So I was very humbled to take over uh, when he stopped editing that journal. And um, I worked on that starting back, I think, around 1999, 2000. So I've been doing that since then. And then over the years, the need arose uh, for journals that were more specific to certain topics. So we have an upper cervical research journal. We have a maternal and pediatric research journal. Uh, and then I also started a philosophy journal. Uh, so we've got something for everybody there in terms of scholarship relative to the journals. And this is a real treasure trove, by, by the way. And uh, whenever people ask me, well, what about subluxation and fill in the blank? Uh, I always say, go to that site and, and search the journals. You can search all four simultaneously, which is pretty cool. And um, you can read the abstracts for free. And for an obscenely low fee, subscribe to all four. There you go. $100, I think it is. What? Is $150 for $150 the year. for yep. everything. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. And last but certainly not least, I would be remiss if I didn't at least mention Cairo Futures and your malpractice company, because that's another very important aspect of what it takes to keep things going. And... Um, it's an opportunity to be insured by a company that understands vertebral subluxation-centered chiropractic. And I, I know that in your expert witness work and, and your consulting work, you've run into people that have been targeted by regulatory agencies because of what they're doing in vertebral subluxation. 
that standard of care issues and, and the use of technologies like, you know, did you really need to x-ray them? All of these kinds of things need to be addressed so that you're protected in your ability to practice this type of chiropractic. Absolutely. And um, you've created a company that does that. And uh, as I've often said, give your money to people who support what you're doing. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, our the quality of the product, too. I, I know that, uh, you know, we won't name names or anything, but if, if you compare the quality of the product, uh, the nature of the coverage, the um, the scope of the coverage, you know, all kinds of cool stuff. You you can add on animal chiropractic if you do that and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it just offers things that, to my knowledge, others don't, and, and a level of service and support that's just second to none. So, uh, again... I try not to do too much commercial promotion on on purpose, but this is such an important part of uh, of what the profession needs. Uh, well, and it's I, about I where you put it. your and it's about where you put your money. Yeah, you know, do you put your uh, money to support people and organizations that share your values and fight for your values, or are you spending your money supporting organizations that are creating many of the very problems that we discussed? Right. Amen. Yeah. So we've got a couple minutes. We'll, as always, give you the last word, whatever you want to leave our audience with. Probably nothing new that I didn't already say, but maybe just reiterating and, and putting a fine point on on, on the fact that, uh, you know, and, and, and this isn't to be negative, you know, everybody wants to get pumped up in chiropractic. My thing is, look, let's just, let's understand what the reality of the situation is on the ground at this point. Uh, and the reality of the situation are that we have some issues, we have some problems. Uh, but I think that they are problems that can be solved. Uh, and as I said, it's, it's not an issue of the technical means. Mm-hmm. It, it's the will of the profession. It's the Precise. will of everybody listening right now mm-hmm. to, to make a decision that, okay, I want to get involved in this. I want to help in some way. Uh, can, I, can you help me collect data in my office? Can, be, can I become a research site for the foundation? Can I write a check? Oh, I don't have enough money, but I have data. Can I write a case study or... You know, all of these types of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is something for everybody to do, uh, you know, in the work that's got to be done to save, you know, the the subluxation faction of this profession and and to put it in its rightful place in terms of healthcare and the profession uh, as a whole. So uh, many hands make for light work is really the message. So uh, if you have an interest in this in any way, shape or form, uh, please contact us, and I guarantee you we, we, we got something for you to do. No question about that. Terrific. Well, again, thank you. Uh, I'm sure you've given our listeners a lot to think about. And here in beautiful Spartanburg at Sherman College with Dr. Matthew McCoy, one of the trustees of the college, I'm Christopher Kent. And remember, when you're on purpose, you are not alone.